Welcome to B2B Marketers on the Mission, a podcast for B2B marketers that helps you to question the conventional, think differently, disrupt your industry, and take your marketing to new heights. Each week, we talk to B2B marketing experts who share inspirational stories, discuss their thoughts on trending topics, and provide useful marketing tips and recommendations. And now, here's your host and co-founder of Einblick Consulting, Christian Klepp. All right. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the B2B Marketers and the Mission podcast, where you get your weekly dose of B2B marketing insights. This is your host, Christian Klepp, and today I'm joined by someone on a mission to develop leading go-to-market SaaS strategies to generate demand, build an unignorable brand, and win customers at scale. So coming to us from what I would imagine is the beautiful countryside of Devonshire in the UK, Mr. Andrew Davies. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you so much, Christian. Thanks for having me. Great to be connected, Andrew. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And I, I, you know, I say I, I say a beautiful countryside because I've never been there, but I imagine it is. <laughs> it is beautiful. I can see cows and sheep from my office here. I'm just looking over over my uh, my window here, so it is beautiful. Perfect. And that's a first for this show. <laughs> okay, so let's get started. So. Andrew, you're no stranger when it comes to the world of B2B SaaS marketing and building brands so that they are, in your own words, unignorable. But for the sake of this conversation, let's focus on the topic that you're clearly passionate about, and that is the importance of a strategic narrative. So in your experience, why do you think that B2B SaaS marketing teams or the team in general, um, you know, they're not very good at thinking about messaging? Great question. So I, you know, when we talk about a strategic narrative, what I'm meaning is the fundamental story, the the insight, the thesis um, that sits behind a business. And, uh, you know, Bill Gurley says the great storytellers have an unfair competitive advantage. They're going to recruit better, have better coverage, raise money more easily, close amazing business, uh, deliver better returns, have better culture. Um, and and so it does not start with a marketing team. It starts with the founder. What's the founding story? Um, and so, you know, I really look for really simple stories. Story Storytelling is sense making. Um, it makes things simple The the customer, the partner, the the viewer, the audience doesn't have to sift through a pile of messages and, and rubbish in order to find what's going on. But it, 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 it makes sense of the company, why it exists and what, what it's there to do. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think that uh, often we don't have time to slow down in order to be able to speed up later. Um, it's hard. It does take the time to stand back. It takes lots of listening to the market and understanding of the context of what's going on in the buyer's world. Um, and so all of those things contribute to why we just want to rush on and talk about features and talk about the sales process and talk about uh, you know why what we've got is better than what someone has already got inside their organization rather than reducing things down to that that core reason for being that's a great way to kick off this conversation so um I've got two things to say about that so first of all um the point of sense making so I don't know if you've read this book it's called building your story brand by Donald Miller so it's all about yep. brand storytelling and so there's many great quotes and excerpts in the book, but one that really stood out is going back to your point. He says, if you're making the reader burn calories to understand what it is you're doing, uh, yeah, then you're, you've clearly gone off, you know, off, off the path a little bit there. Right. And that's the first one. The second one is, um, and I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but SAS seems to be a repeat offender of this focusing on the product features and the processes. 
why do you think that is like why why is it so hard for these teams to actually look at it through the lens of a customer like if i'm a customer going to your platform to your website to try to understand what it is you do yeah i think i think we tend to get into detail too fast um we forget that people don't buy features um we you know keep iterating to find what works and forget the overall you know framework and the overall story we're trying to tell and what 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 caused the initiation of the business in the first place but i think underlying all of those is and you know i've been guilty of this many times is wanting to or forgetting you know, the why and skipping the why and running to the how um, and I think as B2B marketers, we've just got to constantly um, portion ourselves and our teams to not skip past the why and just run to the how, because the how is a bit easier. Um, the how you know, has some real concrete uh, competitive differentiation. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the why actually sits behind that. And often I think that's what a customer is genuinely interested in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you touched on this a little bit already before, but like, what are some of the common mistakes that you see uh, SaaS marketers make when it comes to developing strategic narratives and what should be done to address those? Yeah, I and I know, you know, as part of this discussion, you know, we're going to dig into some of the frameworks to follow and some way the scaffolding you can you can put in place around a story. I think one of the first things is that when you're launching a new product and then you're building a marketing function, um, you are by nature on the attack. You're attacking a new market, um, trying to win market share, trying to win hearts and minds. Often in the demand gen process, you're just trying to win attention. You're trying to win the right to speak in a in a discovery call or at an event. Um, and all of those things put a huge pressure on us to try and um, you know, be in that attack mode of, you know, here's why we're different. Here's what we can do for you. Here is how we're going to produce some ROI. Here is, you know, the, the 54 things we've just released over the last 21 days um, that'll help your life become better. Um, and, you know, I do think in the fast moving world of SaaS, there's a special place reserved for people who are able to be very sit back in those engagements, to listen first. Um, and, you know, we talked about sense making at the very beginning, who are able to help their customers make sense of the problems they face, the problems behind those problems, rather than just rushing to diagnose the, the fix of what's presenting itself at the surface level. Um, and so, yeah, for me, I think one of the, that, the, those, the, the challenge in the rush of B2B marketing is that we try and answer the, the question that's right in front of us rather than the question that sits behind that question. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. I'm not sure if this is uh, something that's prevalent in SaaS, but at least what, I, what I've observed it is that um, many times the marketing teams don't necessarily always uh, base their feedback or base their strategies or base their approach on actual uh, research that they've conducted by talking to customers. It seems like sometimes they tend to skip that uh that process um why do you think that is is it going back to like what you were saying earlier that you know it's just things tend to get moving so quickly in SaaS that um sometimes they they, they feel like it's a it's a time issue it's a time issue it's hard mm. it's it's hard to um it's hard to be told your ideas are wrong it's hard sure. to be um you know put in the situation where you recognize that you've got to change things in your product or your messaging to meet a market need um so i think yes it takes time yes it's hard um it's painful sometimes 
I also just think that um, you know there is there's always a balance to be struck here of listening to what people you know believe and say in the market and how they talk about their problems and opportunities, um, and defining your version of that ideal future. Um, and you know, if we just you know maybe use an example to bring to life the question behind the, the question that sits behind the question um, and this idea of market research, um, you know. In the business I co-founded, uh, IDEO is a personalization software company. So we were, you know, deploying personalization software for the websites and email programs of very large, you know, tech enterprises, Salesforce, IBM, et cetera. And what we were doing was it was a personalization engine. But we found the question that was sitting behind the question, it wasn't just about improving conversion rates on your site. It was that we had a new way of giving you data to make better personalization decisions. We were building, you know, predicting the topics of every user on your website, every user in your email program in order to be able to personalize. So the question behind the question wasn't about personalization and you know improving your conversion rates and click-through rates. The question behind the question was, we've tried personalization before, but you know, whatever engine you use to make a decision in a personalized experience is wholly reliant on the data you're giving it. And if you don't have the data, you can't, you know, it doesn't matter how good your personalization engine is, it's not going to make good decisions. Um, so that's an example of, of, of digging into the, the question behind the question. And then listening to the customer, we found that they described that in very unique ways that we did not come up with. We called this, you know, interest data. We called this, you know, different, we, we took a whole bunch of stuff around AI and ML in terms of the cleverness of this. And then I think it was at Intel, we found that they were, you know, running an RFP and, and, and working on an internal project around what they called topic of interest data, TOI data, um, you know, independent from funnel stage data or other things. And this was inferred data about the topics of interest someone, someone you know, wanted to read more about. And when we changed our marketing, changed our sales messaging to include the actual customer words they were using that we never came up with, we thought was a bit clunky, suddenly it started resonating with other customers too. Um, and so, yeah, that's about answering the question behind the question, digging into the, 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 the need they're facing, the kind of unquantified need that sits behind their issue, um, and also making sure you use their words in how you're describing it. Absolutely, absolutely. And you, you know, you touched on a really important point, which was actually my next question about the importance of conducting market research and developing that strategy before you jump right into like, like things like uh, developing the strategic narrative and the marketing campaigns and the initiatives that are correlated with that approach. Right? Um, yeah. Hmm. I mean, if yeah. if you if you have a compelling view of a different future. Um, but no market context, then yes. you build something crazy. And if you've got a great market context, but no compelling vision of the future, you build something really boring, something really incremental. And so it's that blend. The magic happens in understanding a market context and having some unique view of this, this ideal future you can build. Absolutely, absolutely. Or the analogy that I always love to use when people ask me about the importance of uh, strategy for marketing, it's like, just imagine using the real estate or the property analogy, imagine building a house and you don't have an architect's blueprint. <laughs> mm -hmm. What's the house gonna look like when you finish it, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, next question. Um, in your professional opinion, how do you think CMOs should be making the right decision about what strategy to follow? Because that can be tricky. At its core, strategy is about choices. It's about saying no in order to say yes to things that are more important. 
Um, and there are a bunch of frameworks you can think about through this. I love the the, the book Playing to Win. Um, it's got some great frameworks within that. Um, I think it's Lafley and Martin, the authors. Um, and they talk about how, and I follow this several times in marketing, but also company strategy. Um, you know, you've got to define a winning aspiration, then where do we play? And then how will we win? And therefore, what capabilities must be in place to win? And what systems are required for those capabilities to help us win in the place we play to achieve our, our winning aspiration? And that cascade of decisions, at every stage of those de- of that cascade, there's choices to make. Um, and choice, you know, focus is only focus when you're saying no to things that you really find valuable. They're painful to say no to. Um, so yeah, at its essence, strategy is about choice. And CMOs need to, um, you know, they, they make the right decision, and business leaders make the right decision about what strategy to follow by considering that view of the future, where you can play, how you'll win, what capabilities you need, and looking at the various options and specifically discount counting many options in order to say yes to the one that you think will help you win. Absolutely, absolutely. And if I may throw in one more is, um, and I'm sure this happens a lot in SaaS, it's that constant monitoring, iterating, you know, to see what works and what doesn't work and uh, adjusting as you go along. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in that, even in that process that um, the, the playing the win, to, playing to win book uses, you know, every one of those, it is an iterative process where you then might update your winning aspiration or where you play or how you win right. based on understanding other elements of choices you've made. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, it's Christian Klepp here. We'll get back to the episode in a second. But first, is your brand struggling to cut through the noise? Are you trying to find more effective ways to reach your target audience and boost sales? Are you trying to pivot your business? If so, book a call with Einblick Consulting. Our experienced consultants will work with you to help your B2B business to succeed and scale. Go to www.einblick.co for more information. For the next question, uh, this is something you talk about very passionately, um, the five main narrative approaches to consider. Uh, when crafting a new message, uh, what are they? So, you know, I love using frameworks to help. Um, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants is, you know, often um, our danger in in high growth SaaS is that we think that we've got to reinvent every wheel. Um, and we really don't, you know. So these might not be the, the main frameworks, but they're certainly ones that I lean on and I point other people to um, in the businesses I work in. So, you know, some of the frameworks I'd look at and, you know, we can drop some links to people to read uh, more about these if that's helpful. I definitely want to read a bit more about the hero's journey. Um, you know, hero's journey. It's uh, comes comes from the book, the hero with a thousand faces. Um, it talks about you know this call to adventure and some trials and the meeting with a god or goddess and you know th- this whole circle you go through, going from the known to the unknown and back again. That's an interesting framework for talking about for for, for discussing storytelling. Um, I, I love the the challenger sale um, and that process. Now that's a sales methodology. But what it is, is it's a story framework, because what you're doing within that challenger sale is going, you know, from moving people from kind of being overwhelmed to excited. And then you go through this kind of rational drowning and emotional impact where they're overwhelmed again, and then solve it for them. It's a story framework. You're producing some kind of, uh, there's, 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 um, there's weight to what's being discussed. There's, you know, there's, with, with the challenger sale, you know, you're moving people from overwhelmed to excited. 
um, to overwhelmed again, and then resolving it. It's a story framework, um, and there's consequence um, of the story you're telling. And so I, I love using that, and that's got you know, stage two in the challenger stale is this this reframe where you're reframing the customer's problem. Um, and then you know there's others. You know, corporate visions talks about the three whys: why change, why now, why us. Um, they talk about unconsidered needs which is an interesting framework to use. Um, and then finally, I love Andy Raskin and his work on, on he, he calls it the greatest sales deck, um, which is all about the undeniable shift you see in the marketplace. So all five of those have got some kind of journey framework, some kind of story that you take people on, and they're really good scaffolding to start, um, you know, start using to build your story for your company. I love them. I love them, definitely. I mean, these, I mean all of these resonated with me, especially the first one. <laughs> Because if I remember correctly, I think that was a framework that was actually created by a professor of mythology, Joseph Campbell, yep. right? Yep. And I remember the steps because I've, I've mentioned it uh, more, more times on this podcast than I care to count. But um, basically, it's a hero has a problem, meets a guide who gives him or her a plan, props them to take action so that they are successful and they avoid failure, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at any, you know, to your point, it's you look at, you watch any movie, you read any book, you look at any marketing campaign, and they're using that same framework. And it's incredible how that transcends across different facets of our, of our, of our working life, or, or even not even working life, just life in general. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, and and one of those might fit better with you know each company's context or their situation yes. or who, who's telling the story. Um, but I think you know learning those are really helpful. Um, and then it's you know I, I really love using a framework um, because once you've got a framework that everyone knows you're using, then people can give feedback with the same vocabulary and then right. give feedback and iterate on the stages of the framework rather than kind of people copy editing from the from the very beginning and saying right. I don't like this, I do like this. Right. You can argue discuss the specific points of the journey you're taking people through that's very interesting so just going back to what you were saying a couple of minutes ago because you know you gave us these five uh these five mm -hmm. frameworks or these approaches like is there any one that you recommend or will it really depend on the situation yeah, it really depends on the situation. I do think that um, you know the ones I find myself going back to most often, um, you know, Andy Raskin's sales deck process, which is naming an undeniable shift in the market, showing winners and losers, teasing some promised land, and then showing the the kind of magic you've got and the evidence for it. I think it's that's pretty universally applicable, um, but. People can do it in a, people can follow that process in a very weak way um, if they aren't able to name an undeniable shift, something that has happened in the market that goes from light to day, dark to night, red to blue, that everybody can see, um, and that it causes winners and losers. And so I, I love that kind of sell the change narrative that he talks about. Um, the other one that I do keep coming back to outside of uh, Challenger Sale, which I often see in organizations and find super useful, particularly with sales teams, um, is this. This court provisions framework, um, Tim Ristero and the court provisions team, um, which is around unrecognized needs. And basically what they're saying there is that many, many people sell into identified needs and specified capabilities. You've got a problem on the surface, I can solve it with these features. And the more you talk about kind of what they've already identified, 
um, you know, you kind of become a bit, you know, me too, same as everyone else is talking about those same problems. And as much as you talk about your specified capabilities, the things that are obvious, um, it just gives the impression of cost and complexity, the more of them you add in. But what you've got to ask is, what are the unconsidered needs that sit behind these identified needs? What's the problem behind the problem? And, you know, what are the unknown strengths that no one else is talking about um, that we are uniquely positioned to solve? And if we can quantify this unconsidered need, we're in a very strong situation to shift that status quo. So that example I used from um, that, the personalization business we built was a good example of this. You know, people were, if, if we just stayed in the battleground of better personalization engines, things would have got complex, expensive, and we'd have lost. Um, but we actually went to the unconsidered need, which is you haven't actually built a better data set in order to drive better personalization. And by reframing that solution, we were solving the unconsidered need um, with something that other people weren't able to argue with us and differentiate against us for. That sounds like the path uh, that requires a bit more effort <laughs> on your side. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And if if we just take you know, other example, let's let's take Paddle. You know, sure. we're a situation. We're in a situation where we're solving a whole range of different problems. Yes. For, for companies, for software companies, whether it's their subscriptions and um, whether it's their payment acceptance in lots of different territories and currencies, whether it's tax compliance in all of these territories. Now we could talk on and on about all of the many, many, many different features and the complex features we've built to solve those challenges. Um, but fundamentally, at its core, we're serving product-led businesses that because they're selling something reasonably cheap, therefore to a very large market, they internationalize early. They sell to lots of territories. And if you want to sell to lots of territories, there's a huge amount of complexity in tax and currency management. And we just take that, that all away. And so by reducing the story down to the to the simplicity of, if you're selling international, actually, there's a way of solving all of this that absolves you of all of the responsibility, all of the risk, all of the complexity in one foul swoop. Um, it becomes a much more interesting conversation. Absolutely. And you will probably have no problem answering this next question, but if you could provide an example, uh, ideally from your own uh, professional experience of a great strategy narrative in B2B SaaS. Yeah, absolutely. So let's look outside of the businesses I've been involved with, um, you know, some real simple ones that people will remember you know, Salesforce trying to move people to a cloud CRM talked about no software. You know, you can remember that cloud, the cloud um, that they put up there and then the no software with the, with the no entry sign. Really simple, reducing the entire strategy, the entire shift in the market down to an icon, an emoji that they could kind of print out and give out at conferences. Um, I think, you know, Drift did a great job with conversational marketing. They were trying to get people to move away from complicated forms where you had to fill in lots of fields and move towards giving people value and then speaking with them automatically, but through the drift bot um, and you know, that conversational marketing kind of theme and movement um, was formed out of that. You know, Zora did a great job with a subscription economy, not just talking about what they did, uh, but talking about the fact that everybody is starting to subscribe to things. People want to rent and hire, not own. Ownership is gone. We're now in a subscription economy. And that, that means there's a unique set of capabilities you've got to build in order for you to be able to serve that need of a customer, not by selling them something, but by renting them something, whether that's software or music or whatever it might be. Um, so those will be three you know, easy ones to point out that many people here will, will remember. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, I'm going to throw a wild card out there. Um, you just made me think of something as you were um, answering that question. 
And I think this is very pertinent to, um, well, the current state of affairs. I mean, you know, with everything that's going on in the world um, from an economic standpoint and uh, mm-hmm. SaaS businesses and companies, uh, big tech, uh, you know, uh, with, with, with the market shifting and all the dynamics there, how does that impact the, the, uh, the, the storytelling and this uh, strategic narrative that we've been talking about? Yeah, I think there's lots of businesses that are starting to or have tried to reinvent their narrative to match a new market context. Um, And sometimes I think this can be really inauthentic. Um, There's a lot of tools that um, are made for this new environment um, where post-COVID in potentially a recession economy with capital, you know, capital, minimal capital available um, and difficult to raise, where they're well suited to have a very authentic narrative. I think the challenge here is about making sure that what you're saying is authentic to your core product value. Because if it's not, um, then things get unhinged pretty fast. Uh, but yeah, I've seen lots of boardrooms want to want to try and find a cost saving or runway extension um, or efficient type message in this new world. Uh, and I think some of, some of those have come off better than others. Yes, no doubt about that. Um, yeah, and just kind of correlated to what I was asking earlier, but how do you think B2B marketing approaches uh, should evolve as the company scales? Right? And, and that's something that I think is very characteristic of SaaS. So as a company scales, the B2B marketing process has to you know, evolve um, because marketing in general is often about finding the next ceiling. You've got something that works as a tactic and it works up until a point and then it easily beca- either becomes too, you know, too expensive or it hits the threshold of the number of people that can be reached through that tactic or for some other reason, you've got to invent a new layer to put on top of it. And so some businesses have a very high ceiling on their first tactic. They, they grow to two, three, four, five, ten million uh, ARR before maxing out that first tactic or a couple of a couple of first tactics. And so, yeah, B2B marketing has got to keep evolving to find the next ceiling. Um, and so that means a different channels. That means different, uh, you know, different tactic mix. It means increased clarity. It means making sure your team are now working in parallel across lots of different activities rather than just doing one thing at a time, which then means you've got to talk in, in thematics rather than specific approaches or campaigns. Um, it often means that you start serving multiple personas, which adds extra complexity. Um, but yeah, I think that the biggest thing here is, is that shift of making sure you're finding that next ceiling as you go. Uh, and that becomes ever more critical as you scale because often the velocity increases and so you're running out of the ceiling you're in faster than you were previously um, and so always making sure there's a bit of budget and time for experimentation um, and so you're trying something new a new market a new channel a new approach um, and doing that ahead of time so you've got some lift coming in the next few quarters and a continuous conversation with your customers absolutely right. I mean, that conversation, you know, in marketing is about, you know, what works and what doesn't work, what they want and what they don't want, you know, what they're facing and what they're not facing. It's also right. just the response you get to the different tactics you're using, um, and whether that adds velocity and, and, you know, deal size into your pipeline or doesn't. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ah, well, the next question, love it or hate it, metrics. So talk to us about some metrics that B2B marketers need to be paying attention to with reference to strategic narratives and messaging, because we know that that sometimes is difficult to quantify. Yeah, so um, 
one metric I look at or one way of measuring this is, you know, press coverage and social mentions. Are they repeating back to you the core story in a way, you know, in their own words, but in a way that's, you know, authentic to what you're trying to say? Then that's a really good way of, of understanding whether it's resonating. Um, so recently we acquired a business called ProfitWell, and one of the core themes behind the acquisition, a thesis of it, was that both us and ProfitWell, both Paddle and ProfitWell, have a do-it-for-you belief, a do-it-for-you thesis about how we build software. We don't want you to build better software to handle all your payments. We want to take that risk and responsibility completely away from you so you can focus on product and customer. And you know, we believe that that was a, the core story behind the acquisition. But what was great to see is that was played back to us in you know people commenting and customers referencing it and press covering us using those words or words like it, which was a, a great way of kind of measuring that this had found some resonance. Um, other ways I like to look at it are you know look, looking at first call success. You know when you get into that onto that first call, does it lead to something else? Um, which is usually you know a measure of two things. Number one, are you front of the right person? So you know targeting, and then second, messaging is the message actually landing. You can dig into you know that to become a bit more metrics driven. If you've got something like Gong, uh, we use Gong to record all of our salespeople's calls, um, and you can do keyword searches there. So keyword searches around core aspects of that story or that message, or pulling pull, pulling up um, the specific call recordings from certain phrases that people are using, um, and seeing how often those phrases are used by the customer or by our sales reps. That's another great way of doing it. Um, and then you know a, a more leading indicator in all of this that uh, we bake into all of our um, you know, our message testing ahead of time when it before it ever reaches our prospects is using tools like winter um you know winter w y n t e r um pep and the team they've done a great job of building you know panels of really good um verbose tech you know, tech personas who give good feedback on messages um, and on homepages and copy. Um, and so getting that ahead of time. So those are all some metrics. And fundamentally, you know, the product marketing team often carries this message and the, and the, the narrative as it scales uh, within, within the commercial environment. And, you know, deal velocity ends up being something that they should be impacting. You know, when people start to talk to us, are more of those faster turning into closed one business? And that's the, the fundamental measure in, the, in a commercial environment. Yes, those are certainly good points of reference. Right. Um, so specifically on the topic of strategic narrative and messaging, <laughs> get up on your soapbox now. What is a status quo that you passionately disagree with and why? Great question. So I disagree with how the category creation framework is often used. It feels to me like every B2B marketer um, is desperate to create a new category, that they can be the leader in the category sometimes of one, um, and in the rush to create this new category in order to impress investors and differentiate and show that they're going to be the market leader in a new disruptive portion of the market. Um, we end up making things, number one, very difficult for customers because they're now not you know, struggling to compare vendors that look similar to each other because every one of them are proclaiming a new category where they're, they're on their own. Um, it often makes it difficult for ourselves as companies because the conversation we want to be in is often in the competitive set. We want to be positioned amongst the other alternatives. Otherwise, we won't be brought into other decisions that we're not part of right now. Um, and fundamentally, it can actually reduce rather than increase um, potential you know, size of that business um, by, 
by artificially uh, making smaller the market that you play in. Uh, so yeah, that's something that, you know, there's lots of books written about it. I have great respect for some of the people who've created really compelling categories and have written about them. Um, but I disagree that that should be the strategy that every, every B2B marketer or founder um, you know, seeks. That's incredibly interesting because I've seen a lot of chatter about that on LinkedIn where people are also like in your camp where they disagree with this whole like, um, well, for lack of a better description, creating a category for the sake of trying to, um, you know, uh, communicate some kind of competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like, you know, going back to the point that you made early on in the conversation about reinventing the wheel, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And if we just tie back to, you know, the gong call recordings, yeah. um, you know, we did some analysis of kind of the previous messaging we were using at Paddle and then the new messaging we're using. And, you know, I see a very clear, I see that I've seen this showing up in multiple businesses where there's um, a desire to create a unique category where you're the leader. Often the response from the customer is, what does that mean? And then you've got to go into an, a secondary explanation about what it really means. Um, whereas, you know, the response we get now is how do you compare with and we're really comfortable having the comparison conversation and helping the customer understand why, you know, in certain situations, we will be the best vendor. And in other situations, other people will be the best vendor. And we can talk through that context. Um, but it's a much better response is, how do you compare with than, can you tell me again what that means? Yes. And then you you spend all this time explaining it. And the more time you spend explaining that, you realize, okay, maybe that doesn't actually make that much sense. <laughs> totally. Perfect. Fantastic. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show and for uh, sharing your expertise and experience with the audience. So a uh, quick introduction to yourself and how people out there can get in touch with you. Thanks so much, Christian. Yeah, so uh, Andrew Davies, living down in, in Devon in the Southwest, um, built a, a, was co-founder of a software company called, called Idio, personalization business that we sold in 2019, um, then became part of a roll-up funded by Insight Venture Partners. We bought four or five other businesses, the biggest of which was Optimizely. So I you know, was running the, the global corporate marketing demand function for Optimizely, um, and then have leapt back earlier stage as CMO of Paddle, paddle.com, um, as well as helping out a bunch of other SaaS businesses in Series A, B, C, mostly in the UK, um, and would love to connect with people on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, th those are good places to find me as well as any local SaaS conferences towards you. Fantastic. Fantastic. Andrew, as expected, this was an incredible session. So thanks again for your time. Uh, take care, stay safe, and uh, talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Christian. Appreciate the time. Okay. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the B2B Marketers on a Mission podcast. To learn more about what we do here at Einblick, please visit our website at www.einblick.co and be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player.